Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. As a few reminders, the, the uh, code to get accreditation for today's participation is 43 small c small q. So that'll be around. If you didn't get that, you text that and you'll get the CME credit. Just as a quick announcement before we launch into Medical Grand Rounds, the culinary medicine program today was about grains. There was a quiz. Uh, as you know, that program is here to help us be educated about food as we talk to our patients and food for ourselves. Um, as part of that, there's a trivia contest, and the, the, the question today was about name a couple of whole grains and then a strategy that you would employ them. Um, the answer that was picked by random was correct at oats and farro. Strategy being cook the farro, cool it down, place it in a salad, for example, as whole grains on top of greens. And that was from Cheryl Linsky, who should come up and get what is in this bag. Cheryl? And this is uh, farro. And a meal planner of some ideas with some menus and things like that. So thank you, Cheryl. Thanks for being part of that. So we've actually done that program for two years. You may have quietly seen the demonstration kitchen and then weekly the food that's there. The group, the culinary medicine group, has been asked to come and present what they've been doing at the conference that's supported by uh, the Culinary Institute of America and Harvard School of Public Health, which is happening in Napa. It happens every year. It's called Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives. And it's really about uh, bringing together everyone, not just the medical industry, but all of uh, all of the, the country to think about healthy eating. All right, without further ado, Joy Carter is going to introduce our speaker today, uh, who is here uh, visiting from Mass General Hospital. Joy has been back and forth to Boston herself. She was a Dartmouth medical student, did her internship at the BI Deaconess, came back to do her dermatology training uh, here in Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and then went back to Boston to do her continuous uh, oncology training, and uh, uh, you were at the Dana-Farber, was on the faculty there for a few years, and we were able to have her join our faculty very successfully in 2015. We're happy to have you here. Her interests are in cutaneous lymphoma and other cancers. Uh, come introduce to us, if you will, today's speaker. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce Dr. Arturo Saavedra today. Um, he uh, is a man of many hats, and he wears them all so well. Um, he's not only an MD, PhD, he also has an MBA. He um, is the vice chair now of clinical affairs and the medical director um, at Massachusetts General Dermatology, where he also runs the Bone Marrow Transplant Dermatology Clinic and the Complex Medical Dermatology Clinic. Um, he is very involved in the education of the medical students and the residents there. He um, is also doing research, innovative um, regulatory T-cell research, looking into inflammatory skin diseases, um, innovative therapeutics. And um, I've had the pleasure of working in both as a fellow uh, when I was at Dana-Farber, but then also as a colleague at MGH for a few years. And I can say without a doubt that he is just an amazing diagnostician. He is a passionate educator. The residents love hearing his talks. He's a super thoughtful physician and just a tireless learner. He just seems to always know something about everything, 
and he's what we kindly refer to as a smart person consult. When you have that patient you can't quite figure out in so many different realms, you say, I want to run this by Art um, and give him a call. Um, so thank you so much for coming up to speak to us again after coming for our NEDS meeting. Um, we really look forward to hearing you talk about um, Graph versus Host. Well, can you all hear me first of all? Thank you so much for this invite. I'll say that there's nothing uh, better than to hear an introduction like that with the exception of understanding complete reciprocation for the introduction. So thank you for having me. So what I hope to do today, and I hate standing behind the for you because I hope that this is more of a conversation than a lecture, is to really take you through the life of a bone marrow transplant patient and what skin tells us. So this lecture will be focused mostly on cutaneous effects of graft versus disease. But what I'm hoping to really understand is that even though dermatology is a field of a clinical observation and the physical exam is very important, in these patients, the immunology, as it is reconstituting or evolving, and all the other medical complications in the patient really dictate treatment. It's not going to be the primary uh, morphology necessarily. I will be speaking about some off-label <coughs> indications for this disease. Um, I will make note of that at those times, and I have no stock or commercial interest in these medications. And before starting, I'd like to thank the Dermatology Foundation, who's really supported my career and really funded a lot of the research that you'll hear about today. So we'll start briefly with an introduction and really spend most time on the second um, dot here, the clinical exam, and um, a little bit on current and novel therapies. We hope, again, to be able to understand the diagnostic criteria for GDHD, the differential diagnosis along the life of the bone marrow transplant patient so that one can make um, intelligent decisions about the utility of biopsy and start thinking about, again, a treatment protocol. So before we speak, let's step back and think about what is happening in the patient at any one time. During autologous transplantation, the patient is his or her own donor. And one would think, why would we even be talking about autologous transplantation in the setting of graft versus osteoses? The host and the donor are the same. I'm going to have you think about that question for the whole hour, because if we can answer that, then we've understood what's happening in the patient with graft versus osteoses. Allogeneic transplantation defines, again, a situation in which the host and the recipient are different. We go through a process of matching those two to create the right immunological environment. And most of us think that we want to create the perfect environment, the perfect match and the perfect door. That's also a little bit of a challenge. We want those to be similar enough so that there isn't rejection, but different enough so that other things can happen in the physiology of the patient. And this is where the different types of transplants come in. Initially, the mantra was, again, make everything similar, make everything the same. And so generally, matched related donors were thought to be the best. And in, during the match-related process, basically, we test the family members, kids being the most likely to, um, rather, the second most likely, siblings are most likely to, to match. When we can't find a relative, then we go in the library and look for other people that share some genetic loci. Initially, used to be six, now it's about 10, um, but they're not related to one another. Traditionally, there were some issues where we could identify a donor, but we couldn't harvest enough cells, or so people decided not to donate. And about 10 years ago, we figured out a way of recovering enough stem cells from the peripheral blood. 
And we thought, hooray, now we bypassed the whole issue of having to put in a needle. Let's recover all those stem cells from the periphery and use that to transplant. That was termed the peripheral blood transplant. And back then we sang hooray, only to find out a few years later that patients transplanted in this way at the highest rate of GDHD. Now we do understand why. As a adult matures, thiamic function decreases. Even those cells that are in the periphery of stem cells have differentiated enough to be able to recognize foreign antigens and to recognize self. So as an apology, or as an alternate mechanism, we now understand that we can also transplant enough stem cells from umbilical cord. Again, why would this be preferential to that? Simply because the host is younger, there's been less differentiation of even stem cells, and less antigenic recognition. The challenge here again is that generally one cord can suffice if the host is a pediatric patient. In adults, we generally don't have enough cells from a cord, and we need to. So I want to just step back for a second now and think about that. Now we generate a situation in here where there could be different numbers of interaction. It could be one cord fighting the recipient. It could be the second host fighting the recipient. Or it could be one cord attacking the other cord. So I want you to just think about again what's happening at every moment of this process so that we can think about how best to treat these patients. I'm going to oversimplify um, this slide because the purpose really is to think really about the cells as they're floating through the organism. So generally, we think of transplantation as a way of achieving three things. One of them is we're going to treat a cancer so aggressively that we're going to kill the marrow or injure it. So we're going to have to replace it. That's the first indication. And again, this is in adults. and children, there are others. So what I'll say for now is it's relevant in <coughs> adults. The second one is that the bone marrow is simply deficient. It is not working well. Be it senescence, MDS, antibiotic-induced plastic anemia, it's just not working well, so we have to replace it. But the single most important one is the one I really want us all to understand and think about today. And this is really what excites me most about um, treating these patients. And it's the issue of graft versus leukemia, or graft versus lymphoma, or let's just call it graft versus tumor. When I started speaking earlier today, we talked about the need to match host and donor and make them similar enough so that there isn't rejection. Well, as it turns out, those slight differences that exist between host and recipient determine how well the patient does after transplantation. That mechanism, that fight, graft versus leukemia or graft versus tumor, ensures or insinuates that tumor won't recur. Why is there a risk for tumor recurrence? Imagine these small leukemic cells sitting in the bone marrow and some have entered the, the periphery. You try to kill them all before transplantation in a process called conditioning. And you can get to most of them. Do you get to all of them? Well, if there's one or two or three clones sitting deep in the marrow where radiation or chemotherapy just can't get to. How do you hold those back from growing? And it is exactly that tumor effect that may mediate that. So again, we're trying to create a situation in which immune cells are similar enough so that there isn't rejection or attacking of the host, but we want an underlying tension 
underlying antigenic difference, <coughs> and again, fighting between graft and potential residual tumor to ensure survival of the patient. And as it turns out, that process, turn again graft versus tumor, graft versus leukemia effect, is the single most important determinant of non-relapse mortality. So what am I saying? Should we completely treat graft versus host disease? Should we let some of it go? When do we know that it is time to treat? How do we create an environment in this, these patients that there is, again, no immediate reduction, but there is surveillance across the bone marrow? And that's what I hope to do today. These are older slides, but they prove a point. If you try to match patients for mortality and comorbidity and other reasons why they got transplanted, and you simply plot over time what their mortality is, you see that the indication for transplantation is a very good determinant of that relapse mortality. And this is just an indirect way of saying that different cancers or different states that you transplanted have different graft versus tumor or graft versus leukemic effects. Generally, those that are transplanted with CML have the strongest graft versus leukemic effect and therefore the highest rate of survival. And as you start transplanting for other indications, that cumulative survival decreases. So point number two, when you encounter the patient, it's not just about how they look or what the physical exam is. In the back of your mind, you want to think, why did I transplant the patient? Because if the patient's transplanted for CML, they have strong GDL, and they may tolerate a little bit of steroid systemic medications. Whereas the patient who has ALL, be it high risk, cytogenetically adverse, who may not have a candidate, a second shot at transplantation, who may be older and may not survive conditioning again, that's a patient you're a lot more careful with any systemic therapy because that smaller amount of GBL that's holding that patient from relapsing may not tolerate systemic steroids. So two points we've discussed for now. We don't want to create a, a, a milieu of complete immunological peace. We want some recognition and difference. But number two, we want to understand what that graft versus tumor effect is based on the reason the patient was transplanted. So what is that process? We talked about matching and trying to find the right person to donate. And this has become more art than science, believe it or not. We're not at the phase where we can actually screen for 10 or even more haplotypes before we start transplanting patients but we sometimes choose not the best candidate. Why would we do that? And the reason is, if the malignancy is very aggressive, if the chance that the patient will recur is very high, if the likelihood that a second donor may come along or that someone may not survive conditioning again, we might choose a donor that's not the best to induce stronger GDL, or we may even choose to transplant <coughs> someone peripherally Conditioning process is again the process by which we try to decide to reduce or deplete the tumor. The reason this is an important concept to understand is not just that it's the one mechanism that prevents acute graft rejection, but it is the one that also ensures that there's sufficiently low or hopefully no tumor before you transplant the patient. Now we know, very interestingly, that the process of cytoreduction in the bone marrow works very differently than it does in the skin. Most conditioning treatments deplete the bone marrow to a very large extent before it even starts cytoreducing skin, skin immunology. 
Skin, like the gut, has its own immune system. There are molecules that are expressed on the lymphocyte called CLA that target those lymphocytes to skin. And those lymphocytes set residence there, they grow there, they replicate there, and they respond very differently to chemotherapeutic regimens and radiation that we use for conditioning. So now think about that too. We're depleting immunology in one compartment, that is the bone marrow, and barely touching it in another. <coughs> so when we see someone with rash, how do we think about that? Is it two subpopulations really fighting? Is it drug-induced? Is it GVHD? How do we know? Well, as the field have, has advanced, we've also learned to do interesting things to try to answer those questions. If we have two identical, very, very identical hosts and, and transplant recipients, sometimes we choose <coughs> sex-discordant couples. Why? So that when there's rash, we can biopsy target the lymphocytes and figure out the care type and understand the origin of those cells. So think about that. We are now in this incredible space where we are trying to design the process that will ensure the best outcome, but that will also help us answer a question that we will undoubtedly encounter. The problem the uh, sequence of transplantation is the day oncologists and patients deem to be day zero. I, I had a very interesting encounter with a patient once when I was trying to do a biopsy and asked for two identifiers, asked for name and birth date, and, and I got a date that did not match the actual birth date of the patient. And that is because some transplant patients consider this day zero their new birth date. They understand very well what that day is in terms of the risk of several complications along the way. So most patients are really looking forward to their fifth birthday or their third birthday, depending on what uh, complications they know may, may come at that moment. And then the period of recovery is a period that is, that is mislabeled. It's not really quite recovery. It's the period that we count enough cells to say the cells have taken on. Are they fully mature? Are they fully recognizing holes? Are they fully recognizing tumor? That's a different question. But it is the time at which enough cells are around to at least prevent infection. And those are generally the days. Matching may take several days to months, conditioning about a week before, the two days before actual transplantation, which is day zero, and hopefully recovery after the first month. We talked briefly about matching. We used to use six um, sites, we now use about 10. And again, the, pro the issue of conditioning, very, very important to the dermatologist because we know how good each of these treatments is a cytoreducing skin. So it's really interesting, when, when we approach one of these patients in the ward, it, it almost takes more time to sort of understand the whole process than it is to interview and examine the patient. Because we want to answer, before I see this patient, was, was host and donor a, a, a good match or was it not? Are there still enough lymphocytes in skin that belong to the patient? Or were they to reduce? And all those questions we answer by looking at these graphs. Generally speaking, there are treatments that do not ablate your entire marrow. Generally, they're used in certain populations. There are um, others that reduce tumor not completely, and that those conditioning treatments are generally used for older patients that may not tolerate the cytotoxicities. Again, telling us, know that there are enough innate population of cells there attacking. And then there are the more ablative ones that are used for more intense malignancies like AML and ALL. Why is it important for the dermatologist and the internist to understand where the patient lies along this line? 
And, and the answer to that is it, it creates an intelligent differential. During the conditioning treatment, a patient who is red does not have graft versus host disease. And that patient does not even have donor lymphocytic fusion rash. So the things we really think about there are, of course, chemo drug reactions. Irradiation burns are actually incredibly common. Page, the skin remembers <coughs> sun exposure. And there are patients, for instance, that have had radiation to the breast for breast cancer years ago. And now you give them methotrexate, an induction agent, or give them whole body radiation again for their, for their uh, malignancy. And that area of the breast that was previously radiated will light up. It's just fascinating how the, the cells actually remember, not just location, but also insult. And of course, mucositis. The, pro, the, the day of transplantation is a little bit like, like Christmas Eve. Everything kind of quiets down and it's peaceful. And it's just an infusion. And it is the day after that everyone starts getting tense. We start figuring out, is there rejection? Are cells taking residence? What's the patient doing? And we can define engraftment based on the number of cells that are being produced. Again, the recovery period, the period again when you start thinking about now infections and graft versus host disease. What are the, the considerations then for the patient that gets red during the recovery period? Well, the so-called lymphocyte recovery rash is a, is a very controversial entity, but it is an entity whereby we believe that the rash is induced by new cells that are not really attacking anything. They're just trying to find their way along the, the organism. They're trying to lodge on skin. And that lodging, that expression of CLL, CLA, and diapedesis into skin induces erythema. The only reason it's important to know about this rash is that it is not to be treated aggressively. It is almost a physiological response. It rarely, if at all, necessitates any topical steroids if you can get the patient in, and certainly not systemic steroids. Then you really start thinking about acute graft versus disease, which there are several types, and we'll talk about in a second. That's the purpose of the talk. Drug reaction is always one, two, and three in the differential diagnosis. We'll talk about ways of discriminating those two, viral reactivation and chronic infections. So let's now think about um, the physical exam. The term graft versus host disease has gone through many changes, and we used to define it based on days after transplantation. And if you had a rash from day 21 to 100, we called that acute GBHD. And anything after 100 days, we called chronic disease. Now we know that is not a good system. Certainly there are patients that don't ever have acute disease that develop chronic disease. There are patients that develop acute disease and never develop chronic. There are patients that develop acute and chronic disease. And it is not the timing of the rash, but the morphology of that rash that tells us what the actual disease is. The one exception during the acute period of transplantation and want to really take note of because it has really, really high mortality is the so-called hyperacute GBHD. Hyperacute GBHD is really a, a, a disease of, of early post-transplantation period, day 21, day 45. Patients get really, really ill. They have a full body red rash and generally that rash desquamates. I don't know if you can see the picture well, but if you touch this gentleman's skin, it would come off in your hands. And it is not epidermis, it is full dermis. So this is like a third degree burn in, in every way. Um, the patient will peel. Generally, the patient's febrile, 
and LFDs may actually increase. Often, the dermatopathologist may look under the microscope and, and give you the wrong sense. I am not saying this because I don't think dermatopathologists don't understand this field. I am one. It is just that the body plays tricks on you. Even though you would think this is lymphocyte-mediated, it's actually neutrophil-mediated, and so it can create some confusion. But this is to be treated very, very aggressively because it can lead to hepatic necrosis and death from all sorts of complications, including infection, dehydration, and others. But in general, acute disease is really a three-set disease. It hits three organs, generally the skin, the liver, and both, the, both at the level of hepatic and transaminetic function, and the gut. So it is a three-organ disorder. Why is a dermatologist often called unhelpful? Because it's much easier to biopsy skin than it is to biopsy the other organs, and having a diagnosis from skin makes you interpret derangements in these laboratory values slightly differently. It is also important to recognize this in skin because most patients will have skin GVHD before they have any other organ involvement. And we generally grade each organ based on the deficiency of that organ. So in skin, if you have less than 25% of a rash, that is really stage one. If it's 25 to 50, it is stage two. Once you peel or start getting red, three plus, and once you really have blisters and are losing all skin, that's four. Well, suffice it to say that for every organ, there is a staging system, and based on those three staging systems, you generate a grade. And that roughly correlates to potential complications and survival from this disease. Every bone marrow transplant patient I've ever met knows almost as much about GVHD as I do. They read about it intensely. They understand that if they're going to survive their transplant period, if they're gonna survive their tumor, this is their major cause of mortality. So they know a lot about it. They, they come visit me and they give me all the information I need. They tell me exactly what they transplant they are, when they rise begin, how much you know, their skin is involved, and how they were conditioned. Um, but again, this is how we grade it clinically. You may have heard of the Ann Arbor criteria. It's a recent quote-unquote classification for graft-versus-host disease using biomarkers. So we use three genetic loci to roughly compute a probability of non-relapse mortality. That system is, is used. Um, it just has arrived, um, probably more limited to, to academic centers, and again, mostly as a way of predicting non-relapse mortality, not grading the patient clinically. Several risk factors for uh, graft-versus-host disease, some are obvious, <coughs> identical stem cells, extremes of age, really at high risk. And believe it or not, uh, <coughs> solid organ transplants, really, really high risk of, of graft-versus-host disease, and in fact, the worst prognosis for, for all of them. So let's now bring it back to the bedside. Let's, let's make this real. Imagine a patient is seen in consultation where there's desquamation and blistering. The oncologist and the dermatologist and the internists all face the same question. These patients are often on many antibiotics, either actively treating or preventing infection, and other medications for treatment of their various morbidities. Now the patient is blistering or losing skin. And the question is simply, is this terrible graft versus host disease, or is this toxic epidermal necrolysis from any medication? 
And that's when the, the going gets rough. How do you make that decision? If you are treating GBHD, you're gonna add immunosuppression. But if you're wrong, and they have TN, and they're on an antibiotic for infection, you've made the infection worse. If you do, if you make the opposite mistake, and you're treating, you think you're treating TN and you stop antibiotics, and you give steroids, then the patient has an infection as well. So let me show you a real life patient. I'm gonna show you two of them. And based on prior experience and, and how the patient looks, Tell me, who do you think has graft-versus-social season who has TEN? This patient, as you can tell, is very ill. This is his normal skin. This is the depth of his dermis. It's all healed. And this is patient number two. So who has GBH? Patient one or patient two? All right, we have a vote for two. Let's let's just show hands. Let's make sure. GVH. How many people think number one has GVH? Okay. And how many think number two has GVH? Okay. So 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 you're kind of all right. It's it, it's hard to tell. And so the answer is you can't generally tell. Why? Because the clinical example is very similar. There's some exceptions I will highlight. The pathology is identical. In both patients, there is full thickness necrosis. I will answer the question in a second. This is just to introduce again some new data regarding a new biomarker that may be helpful. Elephant is a biomarker that is used both in peripheral blood but also to stain skin specimens. And it appears that staining with elephant um, diagnoses graft versus host disease. And if you measure it, on, on blood, the, the actual quantity of elephant that you measure um, insinuates prognosis. Why are we not using it yet clinically? Because it doesn't biologically make sense yet. Elephant is produced by the neutrophil, which we know has very, very little um, activity in the setting of acute GBHD. So we're, we're trying to get there. We think it's a bystander effect, and we're trying to figure out how elephant is related to lymphocytic function. But this is really coming and coming hard how to figure out this difference in acute patients. And so the answer is, so this is again just to show you um, that elephant um, can be diagnostic. So in general, what are the helpful hints in these patients? Again, the nurse often is the person who can answer your question. In general, patients who desquamate from the center of the body towards the periphery, meaning it starts in the truncus and then moves out, is more likely to have toxic epidermal necrolysis. The patient that desquamates in the opposite direction, from hands and feet onto the center of the abdomen, is more likely to have GVHD. <coughs> That's generally a good rule of thumb. If you do not have that history because the patient or the family or the nurse can't answer it, then you look at the hair follicle. Graft versus disease always starts around the hair follicle. So rashes that start in perifollicular distributions strongly favor graft versus disease. This is not 100% correct all the time. It is the best we have so far in terms of, of physical exam. So 
I'll skip this for a second just to show you that patients who have terrible graft-versus-host disease have a very high rate of mortality, particularly if they desquamate. So this is something we're just going to have to learn how to do better. And we think we have some of that information. In general, those patients that have um, TEN have a higher, sorry, TEN have a higher proportion of CDA-positive cells. It is a cytotoxic disease, whereas patients with GDHD have a higher proportion of CD4 cells. This may not immediately make sense, but we'll get there. Why do patients with an acute peeling rash have a higher number of CD4 cells? Hopefully we'll, we'll make that, we'll answer that question as we get to the end of the talk. Chronic disease is slightly different than acute disease. Whereas acute disease bothers us in the hospital, chronic disease bothers us a lot as outpatients, and it is more likely that we'll be patients with chronic GBHD in the clinic as more patients are transplanted, as more patients survive, and as more patients come in for care for their uh, skin cancers, rashes, and other uh, problems. Generally, unlike acute disease, graft-versus-host disease can pretty much attack any organ. We've not described it in kidney, we've described it in bone and bladder. It is really a multi-system disorder. And once you make that diagnosis, you're insinuating that the patient is on steroids for at least a year on your first screen. We've already talked about that these are two different diseases. Some patients can have acute disease, never develop chronic. Opposite is also true. And patients can have acute and chronic disease. Why is it helpful to, to recognize this? Again, the skin can lie. This is a patient who showed up to clinic. The thought was that this was a cellulitis. The patient was treated with antibiotics. And what was interesting about it is that he did get better, but it took about three and a half months of antibiotics for cellulitis, and yes, that can happen, but at least in dermatology, you often use antibiotics for non-microbial um, functions, but also for anti-inflammatory ones. I'll just leave that there, but it took three and a half months for that leg to get better. This is where we all can help. Then he was lost to follow and saw his physician near home, where in that same leg, he had sort of this eczema, the diagnosis was eczema because he had dry, peeling skin. A diagnosis of nuanced eczema in a bone marrow transplant patient is best reconsidered. It really doesn't happen very commonly. And your nose and ears and every part of your body should be up and around looking for graft versus host disease. And the answer is in these sort of nodules. I don't know if you can see it from the picture. I can see it much better from the back monitor. But there are these mixoid nodules here. If you close your eyes and you run your hand through that leg, it feels knobbly. There is mucin deposition there. And that is the earliest form of graft versus host disease. If you're not treated aggressively or underrecognized, which unfortunately happened in this gentleman, that's what happens. You obliterate the hair follicle, you bound down the skin, you ulcerate, and this, this patient unfortunately died about two months after this picture was taken. So when you see that leg, you say, why should we even treat graft versus osteoporosis? It's just this big scar and it's not going to get better. As it turns out, the microscope tells us otherwise. Graft versus osteoporosis acutely is a disease of death. It is a disease of lymphocytic attack on the skin, and that's why you see the skin blistering and peeling off and dying. Believe it or not, chronic disease is a disease of inflammation. We can stop it. We can make it better. Hopefully, earlier is better. Later can also work. So in acute disease, we see lymphocytes attacking and killing cells. That's called satellitosis. Right around each dead cell, there's a lymphocyte that's activated. 
kind of beautiful, a microscope tells you. In chronic disease, you get sort of this big bound scar, but you do see pockets of inflammation. And this inflammation is so active, and this is what's really interesting, so active that it disturbs the epidermis. If I showed this slide to a pathologist and did not tell them that this was a graft versus disease patient, they would look at the epidermis and think, oh, this is dysregulated, they're tripolar mitosis, this is a cancer. This is a squamous cell carcinoma in situ, and it's not. It's normal ADHD skin. It's just to, again, insinuate the incredible amount of consistent inflammation causes epidermal dismaturation and dysfunction. So we can stop it. Chronic disease, again, can lead to several different organs being involved, and generally, we've not done as well. We recognize the role of steroids, but after that initial dose of steroids, that second agent remains elusive. Which one's better? And I think this is where the story gets interesting and beautiful, and this is when patients teach us. It is not generally a good rule to stand back and treat patients. You have GVHD, we'll go with steroids, and then we'll go to agent two and three. No, we have to think about their immunology, where they are at, what else is the patient telling us. The physical exam can be helpful because there's some treatments that are better for certain subtypes. It is not the whole answer. Acetotic GVHD, you've already met that gentleman before. Acetosis just means eczema-like. But again, I caution you to make that diagnosis in any transplant patient without making sure that you are not missing the soy <coughs> nodules of graft-versus-hostasis. Ichthyosiform disease insinuates a disease like ichthyosis, fish-like scales, and patients develop, again, these little scales that unlike common ichthyosis, never touch one another. They're non-confluent. This is generally a pediatric variant. The lichenoid version is <coughs> probably the most common and one of the easier ones to treat, where you have psoriasiform-like plaques or lichenoid papules. And this is the dreaded sclerodermoid disease, where the patient becomes bound down, arthritic, loses all sweat function, and generally is, is like scleroderma, a big scar. There are variants that attack just the pigment on your skin that are ligenous to see. This is, again, a pediatric variant and the chronic blistering disease that you've seen before. The mouth can be really, really helpful um, in, in, in making that diagnosis. Patients with graft-versus-hostasis desquamate the areas that don't keratinize, that don't make a lot of keratin. In the case of the mouth, the anterior palate makes keratin. The posterior pharynx does not. Generally, this is a complete desquamation of the posterior pharynx and the local ports. And patients, it is, they can barely speak in this setting. The tongue gets large, and it loses the papilla, the roughness of it, and therefore patients present with dysplasia or inability to, to perceive taste. You can lose the earlier front part of the gingiva and create wicked striae in the side of the mouth. All that I have said is, is true of adults. Children are a slightly different situation. They're transplanted 50% of the time for immunodeficiencies, not cancer. Their conditioning treatments are different, and we rarely transplant with peripheral transplants there. So, so their immunology is different. I just want to make that note. So in general, we've talked about trying to create an environment where cells are similar enough and there's no rejection, but different enough so that the graft can hold down any malignancy from outgrowing. 
And so the mechanisms that we utilize in the clinic to treat these patients are number one, preventing donor T-cell expansion, and that's generally used with it. That's immunosuppression, steroids, sacralinus, things like that. I want to end with highlighting what I believe is the most important mechanism, and that is simply creating tolerance. It is very clear that immunosuppression leads to many problems, infection, osteoporosis, hypertension, glaucoma, all sorts of things, particularly as mediated by steroids. But it also, as we've discussed, interacts with that potential graft versus tumor effect. It does. So hitting someone with hydrosteroids and blunting that response increases their non-relapse mortality. This mechanism of tolerance allows us to create a state of adult thymic function. What we're trying to do is generate a state where cells can be different, but not attack one another. How do we do that? So as it turns out, for a long while, we've been able to do it at Enderm, not realizing it, and that's the use of photophoresis. Photophoresis is a system where we extract blood from the patient, very much like we do in dialysis, but we only circulate about a Coca-Cola can worth of blood, separate out the buffy coat, and only treat leukocytes outside of the patient with UVA and high-dose radiation, and then infuse that back in the patient. It's a way of giving someone UVA, like we do in, in booths in dermatology, but without exposing the patient to UVA damage, and thereby decreasing the potential incidence of skin cancer and other effects. And you might say, all right, that sounds like witchcraft, because why would giving someone dead leukocytes help? Well, what we're doing is slowly over time vaccinating the patient. We're exposing new epitopes and trying to create some tolerance to those, making the patient recognize that, not as foreign, but rather as self. And that is really very, very helpful. It's, it's been trialed, and we know that photophoresis, not as monotherapy, but really as dual therapy, particularly with steroids, increases mortality and overall decreases the amount of cumulative exposure to steroids, and it allows you to steroid, taper the steroids much faster. The problem is it's expensive. It's not available everywhere. It's a three times a week treatment. Each treatment is upwards of $7,000, and it's not generally available. And so it clearly works over control patients. What if we can't get the patient that? Well, and that's again when patients teach you. I, this is probably the, the most exciting time I ever had in my career. And it was over a patient that we all thought was just going to die. There was nothing we can do. There is this little molecule, interleukin-2, that at high dose is used to kill tumor. And that agent, again in high dose, cytoreduces melanoma, renal cell carcinoma. And one would never, ever, ever, ever think of that drug to treat graft-versus-host disease. Except a patient who is a scientist and understood that these cytokines at different dosages do different things. And what <coughs> IL-2 does stimulate the immune response, often in a cytotoxic fashion, if you use a lower dose of IL-2, the relative population of cells that you stimulate is a T-regulatory cell. 
deregulatory cell, a cell that mediates interaction between cells, a cell that allows a state of tolerance. And that is known for many years, but known to be helpful in a test tube, not in a patient, until a patient needs it to survive. And let me introduce to you this patient. He came to see me because he wanted a transplant and couldn't get one. And the reason he couldn't get one is that he had horrible condyloma of his rectum that had transitioned to squamous cell and went to three debulking surgeries, chemotherapy, and the tumor always came back. He was deemed not a good transplant candidate. But he said, what if we think of IL-2 in different ways and use it at different concentrations to help me? Can we use it at high dose to try to reduce this wart to induce lymphocytic fight against HPV-induced neoplasia? He said, sure, that's absolutely an indication. And he said, and if I do well, can I get transplanted? I said, let's try. So we gave him high-dose IL-2 and a topical medication called Sidofavir that targets HPV, and that went into remission. And then it was hard because we thought, man, now, now we have to transplant him. It's clear. Do we transplant him on IL-2, off IL-2? What if the war comes back? Well, he signed consent, he went to transplant, and after high-dose IL-2, the ward never came back. Got transplanted, survived transplant, and developed graft-versus-host disease. And we used it at low-dose IL-2 and cleared his rash. And he's now a practicing lawyer and a new dad. So that's just a story to sort of get to thinking about how do we treat GVHD? I can't tell you. It's not going to be based solely on the exam. It's gonna be a compilation of things. Why was the patient transplanted? How likely are they to recur? Do they have a shot at a second transplant? Can they tolerate steroids? Is this someone that's already maximally immunosuppressed, reactivating EDB, having iatrogenic infections, and further immunosuppression isn't gonna help anymore? Let's go to tolerance. The answer is simply going to be, where is that patient in terms of their immunology? Do they immunosuppression? Do they need modulation? Or do they need further downstream treatments based on scar formation and others? Those downstream secondary treatments are coming soon. Rixolutinib uh, by the training Jacophy has been shown to be very helpful in terms of it blocking the Jacophy pathway and preventing scar formation with some complications. Maximal dose is 10 DID, but it induces neutropenia. So again, now we have so many areas to target that the patient is now being treated based on his or her immunology, chance of recurrence, and overall survival. So I know this has been sort of a long talk with a lot of basic science, but these patients do provide a unique opportunity to be a clinician, a scientist, and overall uh, a caretaker. I thank you all for, for your attention, and if there are any questions, I'd love to entertain them at this time.
based on this and that and more antibiotics, but it might be GBHD. Can you come tell us which one it is? Yes. Um, and as I'm walking down there, I know we can't really say for sure. Uh, and sometimes they want to biopsy. A lot of times we don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Then there's that whole. So my question is, is, is how do you interact with your oncology guys? We have a great relationship with them, but it's it's really hard to tell sometimes, and it does mm -hmm. enter into clinical expertise and sort of your gut. Yeah. Great question. Great question. There is a paper written about this. And um, its first author is Abrar Qureshi, now chair at Brown University. And he looked at probably 50 different variables and tried to figure out which, which one was most relevant to the diagnosis of GVHD. So what factor was most helpful in making the diagnosis? Was it the physical exam? Was it you know, the state of immunology? Was it the drugs that the patient is on? And it turns out that in multivariate analysis, the single most influential variable is a pretest probability of the consultant. It is. It is way better than any other um, objective measure. <laughs> Having said that, I think the, the challenge that we have with these patients is that we have, you know, as a field in dermatology, we, we're, we've grown in, in terms of our ability to make diagnoses and use morphology. Um, we have to sort of understand all the immunology as well. And so generally, the, the way that I interact with these colleagues is first to be present, you know, and, and be around when questions are needed, but to sit down and speak the language as well and say, how did you decide to reduce this patient? And sometimes we sit down literally with a pen and say, this is where this patient is. He has innate lymphocytes. We did decide to reduce them enough. You really haven't used high-dose steroids. You know, we paint sort of the picture together and we, and we come at, at, a, at a decision. Even after that is done, I will be brutally honest, there is a little bit of trial and error. And if you have to try, it is better to try immunosuppression on antibiotics than it is to do the second thing, which is to peel off antibiotics and not treat. That is, that is generally true. In general, again, graft versus host disease will respond fairly quickly in the acute setting particularly at the level of perifollicular erythema. So we, again, generally use steroids. We look at the hair follicle, follow that through to the first day. And if things clear, we feel very comfortable and start with enough antibiotics and we're right. Biopsy, sorry to any pathologist here, I am one, has not once ever answered that question for me. And the read will always go like this. Perivascular lymphocytic infiltrate with tagging amongst ascardermis. The differential diagnosis includes a few graphosocytes Graphosocytes, drug reactions cannot be entirely excluded. Generally, what you get back, and it doesn't help. Um, so it is completely immunological thinking, team effort, and very, very close follow-up to the clinical exam. It does change in the inpatient. So it is, I would say, it's not a one-day diagnosis, it's a four-day diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah? So the, the treatment of IL-2 <clears throat> sounds too good to be true. Yes. And um, I'm wondering if... There's been any thought to actually sorting cells out for high levels of uh, IL-2 receptor and treating them alone without yeah. stimulating any of the other cells? So, believe it or not, that's that has been done. There are many. We could talk about this for a week and hate me, but yes, there, there, a lot of these things have been done. Um, the first part of that experiment was actually to isolate Tregs from the patient, just Tregs, expand them with IL-2 and reinfuse them into patients. And that trial is complete. 
and it helps 20 or so percent of patients, not 100%. Um, your thought about looking at IL-2 receptor expression um, has been tried not inside the patient. It's been tried in, in, in cells. And it, it works in the petrodation. Certainly the level of expression correlates to cell death. The challenge is the same one that we're having in melanoma. We don't understand the immune system completely. We don't understand how it changes acutely. And we do know overall how many percentage of patients respond to a treatment. What we've not been able to do well is to subselect those populations before we do the treatment. So if, if, if your line of thinking is, should we be measuring IL-2 level receptors in gated cells before using IL-2, probably is the answer, absolutely. The same way that we look at you know, VE mutations in melanoma before we use VRAC inhibitors. So yes, that is a, another way of saying that in the future, we will treat patients not based just on the physical exam, but are in the immunological status and the mutational status. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that question. Yeah? So in this balancing act between deciding is the GBH primarily therapeutic in a given patient versus is it primarily pathogenic? Great. It would be lovely to know how much residual cancer is actively being suppressed in that patient. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a, you know, a hidden clone in the skin that we should be um, not over-treating? Yes. Has, is there any progress in the direction of identifying that missing variable? Great question, with a very long answer, so I'll do my best. So the answer is, sometimes we're caught in a difficult situation where patients have terrible, terrible graft-versus-host disease and they're losing their graft. And we always pull back the steroids and we let them have terrible GBH because the best shot of survival is to have very, very strong GBL. So sometimes the maneuver is to make GBHD worse. And often, the consults to my clinic aren't, I would say 20% of the time, it isn't treat the GBH. It's make it happen. Make it happen. The patient's losing their graft. And how do we know? They lose their cells. They become anemic. We have a good way of predicting that with, um, we can look at foreign cells or graft cells versus donor cells and, and, and establish a degree of mosaicism. We can do that in peripheral blood and that's an indirect way of testing that. So yes, we follow that number and then adjust treatment based on that. What we are now doing more recently is to purposely engineer the graft so that we can make that difference obvious. As I've explained before, sometimes we use, if all is the same, we might use a female in a, in a male patient. Biopsy the lymphocytes, if there's you know, white chromosome, that's GBH, right? So, so the answer is yes, based on mosaic <coughs> studies or chimeric studies, based on what the CBC looks like, based on what the CAT scan looks like in terms of lymphinopathy, we do adjust that treatment. Is there one lab? No, there isn't one lab. I wish there were. We looked at eosinophils, which we thought would be predictive. It seems to be more predictive in children than adults. That wasn't the answer. We looked at three biomarkers, not the Ann Arbor criteria. That's not the full answer. IL-2 receptor levels are not the full answer. The extent of CD4 cells are not the right answer. It is just an overall sort of sense of where the patient lies in their immunology and their cancer recurrence. We rarely, rarely, rarely treat GBHD unless it's desquamating 
in the setting of an active malignancy. And we do do things to inflame the patient when we have DBH. And those things are things like iniquimon, which activate IL-4 receptors and TRLF-4 receptors, make, make patients really, really inflamed. Sometimes we inject the candida and towards these kinds of things to induce inflammation and, and try to get the patient to fight off their cancer. So it's, un, it's unusual, but this is the way we're, we're heading. Yeah. <coughs> Any other questions? I have a question along those lines. Yes. <clears throat> um, we see these patients down the line, and they're well, but they've got graft scopes, and they're now going to switch them. Yeah. And so, just along those lines of imiquimod, when do you say, oh, I'm not going to throw that on board right now, I'm worried about inducing course? Excellent question. So the answer is exactly how you would think about treatment earlier on in the transplant course. You say, what, what, can I, what mistakes can I make if I overinflate the patient? Would the patient survive a, a transplant? Yes. Is there a second way of, you know, a second donor? Can they decide to reduce? So if, if the answers are yes, 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 and yes, you feel more comfortable. Generally, if you inflame someone with an equimod, less than 10% of their body surface area, you rarely induce GBH. You rarely induce GBH. If you really, really want to induce GBH, don't pass this on to friends. Send someone to Florida and get them into a uh, sunburn situation. So greater than 20% sunburned, just about all the time, inflame the patient into DVHD. So, so, that's, so if you really, really, really are afraid of it, tell them not to go in the sun and do zero there. <laughs> Fire maker, absolutely. So generally the rule is 10%. Yeah. Any other questions? Thank you very much. It's really